Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. Zimbabwe was rocked by protests in mid-January in the most significant public display of dissatisfaction with the government of Emerson Ngagwa since he took over 14 months ago. Ngagwa, you will remember, deposed longtime Zimbabwean ruler Robert Mugabe in a coup in November 2017. This past summer, he further ensconced himself in power through an election in which he was declared the winner. The proximate cause of these protests were a sudden increase in the price of fuel. The government's response was exceedingly violent and repressive. Thousands of people are now languishing in jail. On the line with me to discuss what caused these protests and why the once promising reign of Nangagwa is now looking more and more like a facsimile of the battle days of Robert Mugabe is Mako Muzenda. Maku Muzenda is a freelance journalist from Zimbabwe, and I've had the pleasure of editing her contributions to UN Dispatch. She is currently finishing her postgraduate work at university in South Africa, which is where I caught up with her for this episode. We kick off discussing the fuel tax hike that led to these protests before having a longer conversation about the ups and downs of the Nangagwa era in Zimbabwe. Uh, before we begin, I wanted to let listeners know, you know, uh, that we have a couple of ad spots that are becoming available in March. If you're interested in reaching this audience, which includes lots of people around the UN, senior leadership in the global development community, NGO community, governments, uh, let me know, uh, and I will let you know what our advertising policies and rates are. As you can see from the fact that we have ads all the time on the show, it's it's a very effective way of reaching a highly targeted audience of global affairs aficionados. So just uh, send me an email. You can do so using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. All right. Now, here is my conversation with journalist Mako Muzenda. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. The immediate cause of the protest was the announcement of the increase in fuel prices. So this was on a Saturday, Saturday evening. Um, let me just check the exact date. I think it was the 11th, if I'm not, no, no, the 12th, um, if I'm not mistaken. That was when the announcement was made that fuel prices would increase by almost 150% effective midnight that night. So literally oh. in a few hours' time, yeah. <laughs> so like no so, so, so no advanced warning whatsoever. This is not good, no, good public policy, I presume. No, no advanced warning um, whatsoever. 
So it was it was a it was an announcement that took people by surprise. The reason why the fuel price increased sparked the protest. I mean, there's several reasons. So firstly, um, fuel is a base cost. So as the price of fuel increases, that means everything else is going to increase. So it it, it affects um, things like cost of production, um, groceries, um, school fees, and the like. So there was um, anger and frustration about that. Secondly, the nature of the announcement as well also I think sparked the protests because firstly, it was in um, a press conference, like a spontaneous press conference by the president himself. This announcement didn't come from the country's energy regulatory authority, who are the ones who are meant to, um, you know, set fuel prices and control like the the flow of fuel in the country. And thirdly, because um, the Zimbabwean president, Munangagwa, made this statement literally hours before he boarded a private jet to like um like a tour of mainly Eastern European countries before heading to Davos. So that was the immediate cause. And Yeah, like peace really, out. I, I'm about to raise your cost of living by 140%. Yeah. Peace out. I'm going to Davos. Bye. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it was, it was, it was that. So it was really the, the final, I'll say like nail in the coffin for a lot of people. And it was, yeah, it was the spark that, that, that set the, the, the whole, situation ablaze. What I don't often understand and uh, is why often in in countries not only in Africa but a lot of developing countries you'll have these like sudden announcements of fuel price hikes. What was the justification uh that that the government gave? Okay, their justification, the official justification was that in fact fuel prices in Zimbabwe were too low. So um, they were saying, no, we're, we're not like raising the prices so much as actually putting them at the level that they should be um, because we, we'd, been, we'd been charging too little for fuel. And as a result, we weren't getting enough money back to buy more. So that was the official line of, um, of reasoning from the government. But, you know, political and economic analysts, including um, one of the presidential candidates, for the 2018 election, who was a former um, minister of trade in Zimbabwe, stated that the reason why fuel prices rose so dramatically was because government increased the fuel, the, the tax on fuel. Mm. So um, I think fuel prices rate got were now like around three dollars and eleven cents a liter. Around two dollars of that alone is tax. So so yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, so so you had this like sudden shock um, based on dubious economic principles and um, opaque reasoning. Uh, and naturally, you know, people took to the streets in protests. What were these protests like? Who participated? And how did the government react? Okay, well, firstly, it wasn't initially meant to be a protest. What was meant to happen was it was supposed to be a nationwide shutdown. So basically, on Monday, nobody goes to work. There no, um, sub, there's no like running of public transport systems, no shops would be open. And this is something that happened um, similarly in 2016. But I'll, I'll get back to that if you when you go into the history section so that I just stay on focus with this. So there was a history of a nationwide shutdown working effectively to communicate a message to government. And the plan was that from Monday, 14 January to Wednesday, 16 January, there wouldn't be any activity whatsoever. 
um, in the country. But so these messages like started circulating on Monday, you know, instructing people, don't go to work, don't send your children to school, you know, don't open up shops. This is just a, a shutdown because enough is enough. But then what happened on Monday is things just weird took a took an unexpected or strange turn in the sense that there was a shutdown, there were protests, and there were riots all at the same time. <laughs> um, the trifecta. Yeah, yeah, the trifecta, basically. So there was a shutdown in the sense that some companies chose not to um, operate on Monday. Some some people were told, like, don't go to work. Um, some public transport operators who work independently of the state, so the buses aren't run by the state, um, refused to, like, transport people into town so that the street could be empty. But then, at the same time, there were still some people around uh, in the city center, this is mainly in Harare that I'm speaking of, and in Blauayo. Um, so in Harare and Blauayo. So there was there were some people around. And as a result, um, people some people started marching and, you know, demonstrating. And that's when armed officials, so the police and the army, got involved. And then it turned into a riot. So that's what I mean when it's like, it was meant to be one thing initially, a shutdown. But it, in the end, it became a whole lot of other things in one. And, and subsequently, there have been also ever just mass arrests of people, sometimes seemingly arbitrary, uh, who uh, are you know believed to have you know participated in this protest. In addition to sort of the the more brutal aspects of the suppression of of this dissent, you know, it seems there there were just like ransacking of houses, and people are just being sort of swept up in in like a a dragnet, and are now being held indefinitely. It seems in in prisons in these sort of sham trials. Mm-hmm. What can, yeah. can you sort of talk about sort of what? the state response to these protests has looked like? Okay, so the state response to the protest was a number of things. So firstly, there was obviously um, the intervention of uh, the military and police forces. So these are people who were not only um, got into the city center, as it were, but also um, started going into... Um, townships. You, you know what a township is, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Like, uh, okay, 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 yeah. yeah. I think everyone yeah. listening would would sort of get what a township is too. But go ahead. Okay, okay. So um, well, it's a smart audience, going... savvy audience. Yeah. <laughs> Just making sure. <laughs> um, so they got into uh, townships as well because uh, what happened was people started. Firstly, in in the marching and the and the demonstrations, obviously people started setting fire to like tires and stuff, and you know kicking over like rubbish bins and and all the like. So the justification from the state was now these were people who were posing a threat to security, right? And there was also a, um, quite a bit of looting of shops. You know, people taking the opportunity to break into um, shops that were unattended and stealing like massive amounts of products and goods basically emptying shops like shelves were completely clear um and and so that was also another element of it saying like no these were these are hooligans who not only posed um a threat to security 
but also ransacked and looted like a lot of other um, shops and establishments. So the, the, the arrests are under the guise of that. They, they use that as justification for the arrest, saying, no, we are arresting people who are guilty of looting and of um, not protesting, as they say, like in an orderly, in an orderly um, manner or conduct, in the sense that they threaten the safety of other people. So that is their justification for um, just just the mass arrests. But the problem with that is it's very hard to prove that someone looted or was was, was writing, especially when in, in the townships they would be going into people's homes. So, you know, banging down doors, going in and like dragging people out. And they arrested a lot of people, but they were very specific in their targets. They were arresting young men from townships mainly mm-hmm. like those were their main targets because they were seen as the ones who were driving the protests so they're the ones who needed to be um taken out of the equation so to speak and and yeah and, and now you have the situation where there's just like thousands of of people that are languishing in jail without any recourse to you know due process mm-hmm. um so you know this this, these protests, this the the fuel hike announcement, the protests, the crackdown, and now this ongoing, really it seemed like unstable and, and volatile situation that's happening now in Zimbabwe. You know, it seems to stand in stark contrast to where things looked shortly after the November 2017 coup that brought Emerson Nangawa to to power. C- can you just sort of talk a little bit about who? Uh, Emerson Nangawa is how he came to power, and I mean, I remember reading articles from you, you know, shortly after the the coup and in in the the months after the coup, you know, sort of describing a, a, a freer society than had existed during the Mugabe era. So, can you talk a little bit about sort of what happened? Oh, that's a question we are all asking ourselves. <laughs> um, okay, so. Okay, but I'll, I'll answer the, the, the first part of the question as in, like, who is an Emerson Nangagwa as a person? Okay, so he is definitely someone who isn't a stranger to Zimbabwean politics. I mean, um, he was involved in the country's liberation struggle, um, where he was closely linked to Mugabe. I believe at one point he actually served as his bodyguard during uh, the 60s and 70s. Um, in the 80s, uh, he joined you know, the newly independent Zimbabwean government as Minister of Security, I think, I'll just I'll just double-check that, as Minister of Security, and, you know, because of his, uh, firstly, of his war credentials, and first and secondly, his um, attachment, I would say, to, to, to Mugabe, he enjoyed a level of power and authority in, in the country and in politics. And although um, over the course of, like, the next 37 years, he did, like, um, fall out of favor and get back again and fall out of favor and get back again. He was definitely a constant. And there was a point, especially after 2014, when um, his faction, for lack of a better word, his faction um, helped to remove one of the vice presidents uh, from power, Joyce Manjuru, thus making him vice president. It, it was looking like a very strong possibility that he would be the successor to Robert Mugabe. You know, he'd been around for long enough. He was close enough to Mugabe to, you know, that he could be trusted to take care of him, care of him after Mugabe stood down. 
So that that was that expectation. You know, he was well respected. Um, an insider, and, yeah, like a long time insider. Yeah. You 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 could yeah. say, yeah, a long time insider. So obviously, you know, he fell out of favor in 2017, and um, the the coup was 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 about you know getting getting back into power, not just getting back into power, but getting like the ultimate seat of power, the presidency. And yeah, you know, when he uh, when when the coup happened and it was successful, there was a lot of hope that oh, finally things would get better because of him himself. You know, he he stood in any case in stark contrast to Mugabe. You know, he was he he seemed like you know the embodiment of like discipline and order, and he was like this and this and that. Um, he he wasn't uh, prone to some of the, the the scandals that surrounded Mugabe. In the sense that you know he didn't have scandals about his wife he, or his family, he was very quiet, and he appeals to a lot of the traditionalists, not just in the party but in the country itself. You know, so there was hope that things would finally get better because he seemed like someone who was switched on, and who had connections with um, the international community. And for a while, it did seem like things were getting better. I mean, I remember even in Harare. Roads started being repaved, roads that had been a nightmare to drive on for years. Um, the police stopped like harassing and intimidating people for bribes. Uh, and, and, and there was like a, a freer press emerged too for a while, if I recall. And and there are like mm-hmm. restrictions on like social media use and, and uh, internet use seem to be uh, reduced as well, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely so. And I mean, even his engagement with opposition parties. Uh, so when he he visited uh, Morgan Shangirai when he was still alive, which was unheard of until that point. And, and, and Morgan Shangirai was like the longtime opposition leader to uh, Mugabe. And Yes. And so, yeah, it, it, and, and so, yeah, there was like a freer opposition. And then he... Uh, you know, pledged to stand for elections right over the summer, and these uh, elections happened, which is you know not yes. insignificant. Uh, yeah. So the elections happened in July. Um, I mean, there was the expectation, or at least um, the unspoken understanding, that the elections are going to be rigged, purely because, uh, firstly like rigging of elections has been there since 2000, potentially even earlier than that. Um, and secondly, as much as he posed, uh, as much as Menangagwa um, presented himself as, you know, something new, a new chapter in Zimbabwean history, and, you know, the, the person necessary to bring Zimbabwe into like prosperity once again, there was also growing sentiment that... Uh, as much as it was a new president, it was still the same party, it was still the same system, and therefore there were still the same fundamental flaws in Zimbabwean governance. So we all, there was there was that kind of unspoken understanding that, yeah, you know, they're probably going to rig, but let's go vote, but they're probably going to rig. Um, so, yeah, the July elections happened, and there was a whole controversy around the announcements of election results because there was a delay, and you know, there was there were photos and rumors circulating on social media of, of rigging, saying like, oh, like they've swapped out forms or like whole entire ballot boxes full of votes went missing. So there was a lot of uncertainty at that point. Um, 
And then obviously there were the events of 1 August where people protested for the announcement of the presidential results, um, which were the last set of results to be announced. Um, and that led, you know, to the to again like army intervention and the death of six people, the death of six people. So yeah, I mean, it it left that I think really left a, a, a bitter taste in many people's mouths because we understood that yeah, there will probably be a continuation of the uh, rigging system, but them, but for the government to be so comfortable enough as to send out like military men so not police but like literally military men into the street to shoot at people who are asking for the announcement of results really left a sour taste in a lot of people's mouths and i think that was really when um the 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 deep like discontent and resentment started setting in because it 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 was it was not just a continuation of the old system it was um it was a it was a it was an increase so like a ramping up mm. of um, military authority in the country that a lot of people were not comfortable with yeah I mean it almost seems based on on what you're describing that you know having sort of secured um, and ensconced himself in the presidency Nangagwa is now sort of willing to kind of go back to like the bad old ways the Mugabe-esque style of, of mm-hmm. sort of population control that this brief period where he, you know, appeared to almost be like a Gorbachev figure, um, mm-hmm. it, it has now sort of evaporated and he is just a more conventional strongman, um, you know, doing conventional strongman things. Mm-hmm. And, and so, um, no, no, yes, yes, it's true. Um, and so, the, the 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 protests that happened um this month uh, 14 to 16 January uh, were literally just the latest in a in a series of incidents and i mean it's it's also important to note that he he, he got into power obviously like after the the, the july election and there was still a, like a, a lot of discontent at that point but there was still that that little bit of, of hope like holding out like okay Let's give this guy at least one more opportunity to, you know, show that he he truly wants to make Zimbabwe um, a prosperous and like stable country again. And when he announced um, his government, um, like because uh, the the 2018 elections were presidential but also general, so there were they, there were new members of parliament and there was a, a government as well. Uh, when he announced his um, government, which took a lot of people by surprise because there were a lot of like good additions in there. So, firstly, our Minister of Finance, um, Professor Tulinube, um, our Minister of our Minister of um, Youth, um, Arts and Culture, Kirsty Coventry, who's a an Olympic gold medalist. Um, there, there was there was there was surprise, but there was good surprise because it's like okay, maybe he was just waiting to be comfortable enough in power. To be able to like hit the hit the ground running with these reforms, but then in September, as part of his um, monetary scheme, the finance minister announced the introduction of a two percent tax on all electronic transactions done in the country, and that I w- I would say more than anything, if it could if it could trace 
the origins of this protest really beyond the announcement of the fuel price increases. I would say it was the introduction of, introduction of that tax because that's what really just spiraled everything out of control even more. Well, who who did that tax did that tax um, Im- impact primarily? Like middle class people. Uh, um, I mean, it, it. I would say it was it was applicable to everybody, but it hit middle class and working class Zimbabweans the hardest because it, basically over ninety percent of transactions done in Zimbabwe are done electronically now because of the hard cash shortage. Hmm. So, um, charging two percent tax on every electronic transaction it, it triggered a, a, a panic in. Um, industries and in you know retail because there was the expectation was like oh if we have to pay like this little extra bit for every transaction that we have we have to hike up our prices so it was a situation where literally overnight people started increasing their prices hmm. and that sudden increase in prices and again that sudden announcement of the two percent tax um, caused deep anxiety and deep panic in people because the last time that such an abrupt economic policy was, was introduced and the last time prices increased so sharply was in 2008, which, I mean, for, for Zimbabweans across the board is just a nightmare year. Um, that was like the height of our hyperinflation. That was the height of our shortages. That was the height of our political instability. Hmm. So in a bid to not get caught up in that mess again, people started panic buying. But that also drove shops to panic and to increase their prices, and that it, it just caused like a domino effect. So uh, how then, do you, how do you see um, the the situation unfolding over the next few months and and, and weeks? How do you see um, you know this this fuel tight fuel tax hike protest and subsequent repression um, play out? Well, I mean, I think uh, on one hand. The, the state's response, the state's heavy-handed response kind of did its job in that it re it reinforced like a culture of fear and silence in the country. Um, and so on Monday, you know, there was still that drive and energy to continue the protest. But by Wednesday, generally people were too tired and too scared to continue with it. So it, it, it kind of, the protest petered out, but the violence and intimidation continued. In terms of the fuel price hike, there was, um, you know, like outcries, like, no, this is unfair. We'll, like, we've already have so much pressure on our pockets and on our salaries, and you're increasing the price of fuel without an increase in salaries. But the people have slowly had to adjust because there's, as frustrating as it is, there's also the realization that, first of all, our government does not listen to us. Secondly, our government doesn't care. <laughs> Um, and thirdly, there's really no way around it, like especially with something as vital a commodity as fuel. So people have adjusted. It's simply a situation of either moving around less or um, trying to buy uh, U.S. dollars specifically on the black market in order to access um, fuel that stations that are only selling in U.S. dollars. But yeah, people have basically, kind of, in their own way, tried to adjust to this new announcement. In terms of um, the future, in terms of state uh, violence and intimidation, I don't see a change. 
purely because this is not like as as horrific as the violence from the protest was. It's not nothing new in Zimbabwean history. It's it's just uh, another chapter in the story. And what the unfortunate thing is, they've learned from this point that their response works for them, as in it works to um, shut down dissent, to you know remove um, what I would say volatile elements like people who would actually go out and protest from the street. And also sending out that message to people who might have that desire not to do that. So um, in the next few months, I honestly don't see any significant changes in terms of, firstly, the price of fuel. Um, secondly, just the cost of living in Zimbabwe, which is still going up. Inflation hit, I think, 200% this month alone. And I don't see any change in... Uh, responses from government in any kind of dialogue and discourse on the way forward. Uh, well, on that uh, unhopeful note, uh, Mako, I'm sorry that we'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Mako. That was very helpful. Um, and yeah, you know, it'll be interesting to see how this uh, shakes out in coming weeks and, and days and it, it doesn't seem like it's leading anywhere good unfortunately as i mentioned at the outset please do let me know if you are with an organization an entity that you think would be interested in reaching my audience people who listen to this show include a lot of senior leaders around the un government uh academia you know, basically global affairs nerds with a particular emphasis on people interested in global development news and you know, news that is often overlooked, but nonetheless uh, important for people who are professionally engaged in these kinds of things. Uh, send me an email. He's in the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. All right, we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye.